Well, I'm Jared, and I get to finish our, uh, our series today called The Doctor Is In. Over the last four weeks, our presenters have talked about uh, mental illness and grief and anxiety and depression and redeeming our story. Aren't you glad we're about to finish this series up? Whew. There we go, yeah. But, but really, if you missed any of those talks, I, uh, I strongly encourage you to listen to the podcast and uh, benefit from this uh, amazing group of presenters that we've had. Today, I get to wrap it up by talking about mind renewal. Uh, you know, this is kind of following in the, the footsteps of how the Apostle Paul crafted one of his longest letters in the Bible. We call it 1 Corinthians. And what he did was he just went through a series of challenging questions and issues that that congregation in the church of Corinth was experiencing. Now, I don't know if the Apostle Paul was writing to the church of Washington County today, if this topic would have been in his top 10, but very likely, very likely, because what he was describing was the intersection between culture and faith in Jesus and how that makes sense in our lives, in our families, and in our faith community. And today we're going to be talking about a topic that comes up in the very top of the list of concerns that parents express in surveys when asked, what is the most challenging thing about raising your children and youth today? Uh, you probably know that recently Silicon Valley executives have been speaking about the purposefully addictive designs of um, smartphones and social media, which make it really hard for any of us to put down and especially for teenagers. A new report describes the sudden drop in happiness of teenagers that is simultaneous with the proliferation of smartphones and finding that the more hours that uh, a teen spends in face-to-face -face social interaction time and the fewer hours in social media use, the happier they tend to be. Uh, just uh, last week, a report was published stating that Americans are also becoming more sedentary. <laughs> this is not a surprise to any of us, isn't it? In less than the last decade, uh, teenagers in America are spending an hour more in sitting time to eight hours, and all the rest of us as well. It's now up to six and a half hours a day for adults of sitting. And so my question is, so how do these trends affect you? How do they affect your family? And how do they affect your faith and your faith community? Now, I know that here today in this room, we represent a lot of different life situations. Uh, some of you uh, have siblings or nieces or nephews. Some of you are, uh, are young adults. Some of you are married without children. Some of you are empty nested, et cetera. We're all at different places in our life. But as a community of faith together, we're interested in what God might think about how we use our minds and how we use our bodies and how we demonstrate our energy when it comes to this major cultural uh, transition that we find ourselves in and how it affects us. I want you to go back with me several thousand years to Moses in the desert, the national leader of Israel, giving his farewell address. And this is what he says in part. And if you can identify as I read on the screen the words in bold, would you read those out loud with me? Here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Together, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up and tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads and write them on the four door frames of your houses and on your gates. I can hardly read that compound sentence. Moses was 120 and standing when he gave it. Now, when you think about that for a moment, what would Moses have said today? Well, I don't know, but he's talking about the greatest, highest value of all, which is to love God with all we've got. And then he says to parents and to those of us that are influencing adults, impress these things, impress this on your kids. And then he talks about how to do that in a 24-7, 360-day, five-day-year kind of way, a ubiquitous presence. I think today he could be talking about screens, couldn't he? So uh, when you're uh, going to school, uh, when you're coming home, when you're getting up, When you're going to bed, go ahead and have a smartphone on your hand. I don't know about the tie it on your forehead thing. uh, That's not quite there yet. And there's a game though. What's that one called? Where you flip it up. Yeah. So once in a while, I've seen a screen on Anne's forehead. I don't play games. So I just, you know, I'm just a watcher. Yeah. Yeah. And then as you put them all around your house, make sure you have screens on your entry and every place in your house as well. I think he might be saying to us. And what he's saying is use that ubiquitous nature of physical presence and time to impress something on the next generations. And let that be impression be, turn your phones off when you come to church. No, I didn't mean to call you out. I'm looking over here. That impression is use life to teach and train loving God with all you've got and loving others as yourself. Wow. When Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was asked about the very highest purpose in life, he quoted but added to that great command. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and he added to it, mind. We know that the home is the place where worship of God starts. It's where we learn to remember and recite God's word. It's where we learn to respond to God with our heart and our soul and our strength and our mind. We, we learn where, where God wants us to love him first and then others. It's where parents, it's where siblings, it's where others make a primary impression on our kids. And our generation today knows more than any other generation has ever known about what making an impression on brain and therefore mind actually has to do with habit and life development. Your mind is the center of your conscious and emotional life. Paul writes his theological masterpiece in the the book of Romans and uses the word mind 14 times. The engagement of mind and spirit and body is extremely important for him. And in the first 11 chapters of Romans, he gives us his grand theological masterpiece of three movements. It's first of all, God created you to be an image bearer of 
God's likeness and image. Secondly, because of human independence and sin, we smashed and squashed that relationship with God, with others, with ourselves, and with creation. And third, God intervened to give us forgiveness through Jesus and new life through his spirit. That's the big meta story of Romans chapters 11 through, uh, 1 through 11. And then in chapter 12, he hinges it into the rest of the book, which is, therefore, this are the, these are the implications for how you should live your life. And I want you to notice the first three verses of that second section. It's Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 1. And the first word is, would you read it out loud with me? The first word, therefore. Yeah. And when you find it, therefore, you always ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Because it's always an important hinge. It's absolutely contingent upon what has preceded it. What preceded it was, you're an image bearer of God. That got horribly broken in sin. God's given forgiveness and a fresh start. But that fresh start still happens in a broken soul. Therefore, he says, I urge you to attend to the beautiful being that God has made you so that you can not only be redeemed in your spirit, but restored in your soul. And this is what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly as you ought, but but rather to think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Now, I want you to notice briefly here that God is actually going in the creative design of humans that we read about in Genesis chapters one and two. He starts, first of all, with what part of our being? Our body. The implication of Jesus' intervention in forgiveness and the Spirit's intervention in giving us life now and abundantly eternally, the first implication is God wants your body back. And he wants us to use our bodies in a way that express worship to him. The Genesis account says that God, first of all, created the body. And so care for our body and how we eat and move and sleep is God's first plea to us. When Marley had a stand moments ago and we used songs in worship to God, that is worship. And today in this 70 minutes that we're together, this is corporate worship. And this week as you spend one-on-one -on -one time with God in your devotional experience, that's worship. But Paul is talking about the worship of one's body that's 24-7, 365. It is the care for this beautiful creation and using it with its energy and its attention in ways that honor God. Then he says, God cares about your mind. And here's the sequence. The mind, first of all, was wired perfectly. And then it was unwired, and now it's being rewired. And he describes that by saying, I want you to be transformed by the renewal 
of your mind. And then he gives an audacious promise. If this was not in the Bible, I would never say what I'm about to say. I suppose that for many, if not most of us, our highest aspiration in life is that we experience God's will. And as Paul said, God's will for us is good and pleasing and perfect. And if you're a sibling or an aunt and uncle or a parent or a grandparent, isn't it true that what we want more than anything else for those younger people in our lives is that they would experience God's will in their life? His whole life of good and perfect and pleasing. And Paul gives us the key, the pathway to experiencing God's will in our life. And he says, I want you to be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Because people with renewed minds, here's the promise, experience God's will that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And those of you that are way spiritual, it's it's here. He finally gets to the Spirit. And in verse three, he begins what now launches a rather long passage of a couple of paragraphs. We only read the first verse where he introduces us to this new life of the Spirit. And he talks about accessing that by faith. And he goes on to describe this life-infused life of the Spirit. God gives you faith. He gives you gifts of the Spirit. Those enablements to be of service to other. Here is the summary. God has come to us in our perfect and then broken state and intervened with forgiveness and life in the Spirit. Therefore, present your bodies in a way that is of service and use and honoring to God. Present your mind in a way that doesn't just go down the easy path of cultural confirmation, but the cross-cultural path of the hard work of mind renewal so that you can live in God's will. And then enjoy the life of the Spirit, the life that we must have to be of service to others and to enjoy eternity with Christ. So here's the point. You were primarily designed to live out God's great command to love God and to love others. And... That command is fulfilled through our spirit, soul, and body. And you and our kids are responsible for the way we are wiring and rewiring our brain to go in God's ways instead of defaulting to the easy confirmation of cultural pattern. And Paul promises that when we have this transformed, rewired, renewed brain, which then stimulates the activity of the mind, that we will experience God's goodwill in our lives. So to make that really practical, we want to bring that down now to where we live every day and where we're going to be living this afternoon and tomorrow. And we're going to make a very pointed application of that larger idea today. And we're going to ask the question, so what does this mind renewal look like? And what does it look like to not be conformed, but to be transformed? And what's the impact of devices uh, the, what what is, uh, uh, devices and technology, the impact on our brains. I'm going to ask here in the second of third movements for uh, a friend and a fellow evergreener to come, David Llewellyn. Many of you have met David and Becca, married about uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, David and, uh, and, uh, and I and Anne and uh, David's family met for the first time many years ago in Billings, Montana, which is home. Any Montana people here today? Yeah, go ahead and be proud of that, Yeah. 
you're all nice and you just raise your hand, no shouts and whoops, but yeah, yeah, good, good, nice Montana people. And uh, five years ago, David moved here to uh, enter a doctoral program in neuropsychology at uh, Pacific University. And uh, David and Becca are a wonderful part of our congregation. Very proud of you and pleased you're wrapping up this major part of your doctorate. Uh, not happy that within a month you're going to be moving to the Tampa, Florida area uh, to continue your education. And the deal is you have to come back home. David has recently finished his doctoral research on screens and their use and parents' Uh, understanding or misunderstanding about that in the lives of their kids. And we are fortunate this morning to be the first public group to hear and benefit from some of that information. Would you welcome David Llewellyn? All right. Well, thank you, Jared. Thank you for the introduction. And I'm going to pull out my cell phone now and place it on here. Uh, part of that so I can time myself here because I really like talking. And if I don't time myself, I will go on for a while. So, as I said, I'm really excited to be here, and there's a picture of me when I was younger back there. Uh, this was taken in about 1995, and I really liked computers, as you can see back there. Um, and so, what we're going to be talking about here is parenting. And the big idea here is that parents have the power to transform their child's use of technology. And... Um, Tech, and many parents today are really worried about technology and also raising kids. There is roughly, I'd say about 77% of parents believe that raising kids today is more difficult than it is when they were children. So, and when I look at this, I also like to think of history and what was said in history. And there was a guy in 1565, and he said this about the printing press. He said, the modern, world would, or the modern world overwhelms people with data. This overabundance is both confusing and harmful to the mind. And he said, that, and that was said by Conrad Gessner about the printing press. And what that tells me is that people were really worried about technology a long, long time ago in 1565 and even earlier before that and its effects on people. And what I like to do is I like to go to the Bible to see, well, what are we going to do about this technology? And there's a verse that comes to mind for me, and that is 1 John 2.15. And what 1 John 2.15 says is, do not love the world or things of the world. And what that says to me when applied to technology is that technology is best used in moderation. And now we'll have, we'll look at some of the positives of technology as well as the negatives. Uh, there are many researchers out there, and a lot of researchers like to look at the negatives, uh, and I like to look at the positives, so that's what we're going to look at first here. And uh, with approximately two hours of use a day for people who are age six plus, and this is using high-quality programs, so programs that are designed to teach. Uh, these programs include uh, TV shows such as Dora the Explorer, Veggie Tales, and there are some other ones out there as well. And these shows are correlated with children having better vocabulary, being more active in extracurricular activities, and having higher math, science, and English scores. So now um, I'm going to get into some of the negatives. And I like to group the negatives of technology into two different uh, groupings. The first one is the distraction element. So you often see people texting, 
uh, maybe on the cell phone, but they don't realize that there's a step here in front of them that may fall off the stage, that sort of thing. Uh, so devices have, um, there have been some studies on devices and car accidents, and what they found is from 2007 to 2011, uh, in the United States, technology such as phones and those sorts of things from texting was responsible for uh, an additional 70,000 fatalities uh, in uh, the United States alone. So it's really important to put down your phones when you're driving um, and, uh, not, and answer the text messages when you're stopped. Uh, the other area that is... Um, uh, another negative area of technology is with excessive use. And with excessive use, uh, the most robust finding, uh, which basically means it's the strongest finding, is that there is a decreased amount of sleep that people get. Uh, and this can lead to things such as irritability, anxiety, uh, depressive symptoms. There's also uh, evidence that really strongly points to uh, these devices. Jared mentioned sitting quite a bit, that these devices also lead to, can lead to obesity as well, um, and poor academic performance. So what do we do now that there's all, have been some, that we know some of the positives and negatives? Well, you might know the answer. I like to go back to the Bible, and uh, there's a verse that comes to mind. It's Colossians 3, 1 through 4. It says, now set your sights on the rich treasure and ways of heaven, where he sits besides God in the place of honor and power. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Don't spend your time worrying about things down here. And when I apply that to technology, uh, what I hear is to rule over your screen time so your screen time does not rule over you. And Jared had a wonderful message on this a few years ago as well that I remember very well. So what does this look like? Uh, ruling over your technology. Well, they don't actually have any adult guidelines. So we're gonna go to the kids' guidelines here. And this was on my, um, and this is what my dissertation really focused on. So in particular, what my dissertation looked at, and I thank many of you for answering all those questions that were there as well. Uh, my dissertation focused on parents' agreement and knowledge of these screen time guidelines. And what we found was that for most of the guidelines, roughly about 70% of parents knew about the guidelines, which is really surprising to me and really encouraging. And then roughly another 70% of parents agreed with the guidelines, at least somewhat or mostly agreed. So I'm going to go through a couple of these guidelines. So the first one up there is 18 months. Uh, so children who are under 18 months, the guidelines state that uh, these children... Um, should have no screen time except for video chatting. Uh, the reason for that is because we really want, at that young age, uh, psychologists and educators really want children to focus on building social connections. And the screens can kind of take away from that as well, as I'm taking away from you to try to get my timer back up. Here, um, except for video chatting. And what video chatting does is it really helps people uh, or it really helps these young kids connect with other people as well. So like I'm thinking FaceTiming, say aunts, uncles, friends, uh, and parents and grandparents. So from 18 to 24 months, these recommendations uh, indicate that uh, it is good to um, introduce children to technology about one hour of high quality programming. I talked a little bit earlier about high quality programming. Now I'm gonna talk about low quality programming a little bit. 
Uh, this low-quality programming uh, is stuff that's there just for entertainment. It may be really flashy, uh, but it doesn't serve much of an educational purpose at all. And um, what it can lead to is, and there's some people laughing, and as my uh, brother-in-law astutely noted about his five-year-old son, was that when he got done watching this certain YouTube program, he would be a little bit more annoying and would be talking back a little bit more. So what he found out was that in this YouTube program, the kid in the program that he was watching was talking back to his parents more. And what happened was my brother-in-law was like, okay, you're not gonna watch that program anymore. Child did not watch the program anymore and he stopped talking back a bit as well. So that is a concept of modeling and that is something that is really important when it comes to screen time. And now we're gonna go to the two to five year old. Uh, generally with two to five year olds, they recommend one hour of high quality programming a day. And then with the six plus year olds, it's uh, consistent limits that allow for adequate sleep and physical activity. So this is going to change from family to family. And all these guidelines will change a little bit from family to family. What I love about being a psychologist is I'm there as a tool for the families that I work with. And uh, what that means is that you guys are the experts in your family, so you know what's really best for your family, so you can adjust some of these uh, for that as well. And there's also some general recommendations, and some of these general recommendations are the ongoing communication. So just talking with your kids about um, what online safety looks like and online stewardness looks like, because really a lot of children today and a lot of adults are navigating both um, life here, like in the present, and then also life online. So there's really two social domains that people are in today. And then also having media free time. This is really important. Uh, my wife and I like to do this, so we have time that we set aside where we don't use any media. Uh, one of the most important ones here is one hour before bed. Uh, I would say if you have any, like, screen time restrictions, I would highly recommend that one. The reason why is because these devices will put light into your face that's blue light and that wakes people up. So it's more difficult for individuals to go to bed. There's also uh, media-free locations. So again, uh, this is surrounding around sleep, is having the bedroom be a media-free location, especially at night when people are sleeping or should be sleeping, because a lot of times kids will go back and look online, or like, I like to go look online, uh, or go um, text somebody who's just texted me uh, when I'm sleeping, and that just really wakes people up. So I removed my screen from my bedroom, and I actually find that I'm sleeping much better. All right, so now for the last part of my speech is that we're gonna, I'm gonna talk a little bit about how, well, God made you the expert of your family, and each family will handle technology a little bit differently. So the most important thing here is modeling, and this is what my study found. It found a result similar to other studies in that children and parents uh, watch about the same amount of TV. So your kid will watch about the same amount of television or use a device about the same amount that you do. However, what we found is that uh, many parents will restrict the amount of time that they watch, but that is not as effective as a child modeling you. So in essence, a lot of time the kids will um, follow what you say or what you do rather than what you say. 
And then uh, another aspect of this is having teachable moments. So looking for times when your child is using technology and to teach them about maybe what's going on and to show that they're watching, uh, point out, oh, that guy looks kind of angry or, oh, that guy looks like he's uh, being nice to this other person. Uh, so just really having those teachable moments and not just like just watching it uh, as well. And then there's also restricting, and this will depend on the age of the child, uh, just setting these limits that really help children um, find kind of boundaries that they have. And the next is monitoring, and I am a big fan of this one because monitoring helps to leave uh, people with more awareness. And what that involves is using devices to monitor themselves, so I'm monitoring the amount of time that you spend on them. Uh, there are many apps out there that are great apps. And another thing, too, is uh, I started monitoring myself on technology about three, or three years ago, and I found that I was spending three hours on my cell phone alone. For a grad student, that isn't really a very good thing to be doing uh, because I should be studying and doing other things. Uh, so after I came to that realization, I ended up cutting that down to about 40 to 50 minutes as well. Um, and then also, so monitoring your children and monitoring the amount of time that they spend as well as the content that they're watching is important to do. And there are apps out there that can help with that as well. And there's actually an app out there that will shut down the person's device after they've used it for a set amount of time as well. And so the most important thing is that um, you have the power to change your child's screen time habits as well as your own. Thank you, and I'll ask Jared to come back up. So mobile technology is still kind of in a wild west period. I mean, there's so much that we don't know. And, uh, and it can and probably should evoke some anxiety. Uh, parents and other adult influencers, we want to be informed and prayerful and thoughtful about practices. But at the same time, I encourage you not to worry too much about it. A fun article uh, last month in the New Yorker magazine it said, according to the most recent cave drawings, children nowadays are using fire more than ever before. And it's no wonder fire has many wonderful applications. You don't want to be the bad guy, but you also want to make sure that your child engages in other activities like hunting and gathering of rocks and bones with which to make tools. So how do you set appropriate boundaries for your child on fire usage without jeopardizing the family unit? Well, here's three suggestions. Number one, Establish clear but firm limits. Fire is nice, but there's a time and a place for it. So institute specific fire watching times and stick to them. Number two, have a designated fire room in your dwelling. Those with smaller huts may find this suggestion difficult, but establishing even a fire corner can help create a fire and non-fire spaces in your living area. And number three, Watch for changes in communication and concerns. For many children, fire is harmless, pleasant addition to their lives, but for some, it can become an all-consuming passion. So if your child seems to be growing unhealthily attached to fire, don't wait to talk to them about it. Yeah, there's a lot of reason to be concerned about technology and hopefully some good uses as well. I may have mentioned that in a recent study, parents were asked, what are the top concerns that you have and challenges in raising children? And there are three that emerged to the top and tied. One of those was, I quote, 
monitoring technology, and social media use. God cares about that, and he's with you. I admire so many of you that I listen to you and I watch you, and I see how hard you are working to get this right. But it's tough because, first of all, we don't know what right is. And your friend's parents certainly have a different right than yours. And all of their environments suggest different things. It's tough, we understand. But you're struggling your way forward. And you're doing that by praying and by talking with other friends and by talking with your kids and for trying to be a good role model in your own practices and sharing your struggles and wisdom with other parents and maybe most importantly, getting perspective from students that are just a little bit older than your kids because they really are the experts about much of this. You care about this and many of you are getting it so well. You're not perfect, but you are prayerful and you're purposeful. Good for you. For this reason, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Impress these things on your children. And do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. What might that look like if we're just lazy and sloppy? Well, we might learn something from a list compiled by a group of fifth graders called Rules for Parents. There are five. Number one, no talking and driving. I hate it when my mom puts in earbuds and doesn't even talk to me on the way home. Two, I hate it when my mom makes me text while she's driving. Three, no talking on the phone or texting during dinner or our social time. Number four, don't post pictures of me without my permission. Mm, none of you are guilty, I know. I scroll your Instagram, I know. And number five, don't say five minutes and then stay on the phone talking, scrolling, or emailing for the next two hours. I think the kids have been listening to their parents, but apparently watching some behaviors that weren't necessarily consistent with that. Don't be conformed to the easy pattern of the culture of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What might that look like? Well, I think that it includes keeping technology in its proper place. And I want to suggest that that might include these five uses of technology. First of all, to help us bond with the real people that we've been called to love and serve. And to generate and start great conversations. And to help us care for our bodies. And to acquire skill and mastery in, in great creative human domains. In sports, in music, in cooking, in the arts, in writing, etc. And to help us develop appreciation and awe for this beautiful world that God has called us to be stewards of. Andy Crouch former executive editor of Christianity Today magazine, 
writes in his book, The Textwise Family, which is one of the several references that David and I have provided for you at the end of your outline today, writes the 10 Textwise commandments that his family strives to live by. If you're interested in the book, by the way, he devotes a chapter to each of the commandments. And by the way, if you don't like one or two of these, go ahead and feel free to toss them out. My challenge to you would be just replace them with two that make more sense to you. This is what his family suggests. We develop wisdom and courage together as a family. How could you use technology in that pursuit? We want to create more than consume. So we fill the center of our home with things that reward skill and active achievement. We are designed for rhythms and rest. So one hour a day, one day a week, one week a year, we turn off devices and we worship and we feast and we play and we rest together. Now, if the standard is getting so high that it's starting to feel guilt-inducing, let me tell you that at the end of each of his 10 chapters in the book, he does a reality test and he tells you how this actually works in their family. And by and large, he tells you that they have lots of failures along the way, particularly this one, but it's what they aspire toward. Number four, we wake up before our devices do and we go to bed before they do. We aim for no screens between the double digits at school and at home. We use screens for a purpose and we use them together rather than using them aimlessly and alone. Car time is conversation time. Spouses have passwords and parents, one another's passwords, and parents have total access to their children's devices. We learn to sing together rather than letting recorded music take over our lives. <laughs> He's a musician, by the way. <laughs> I thought you snuck that one in there, Andy. And then I thought about it, and I thought, isn't that true? Where is the singing together? And finally, we show up in person for big life events. We learn how to be human by being fully present at our moments of greatest vulnerability. He talks about weddings and funerals in particular. We hope to die in one another's arms, not on a device. <laughs> Parents were terrified at the technology of the printing press. So were the experts. They were probably equally terrified about fire. <laughs> And we should have some concern about the appropriate and helpful use of technologies. And we still have a lot of learning to do. But you know, fire and the printing press turned out to be beautiful, beautiful tools in human culture and in the advance of God's purposes. Parents are anxious about the use of mobile technology because we understand that it's not just the acceleration of access to information but it is more fundamentally actually reconstructing how relationships occur. And it's challenging for my generation and the great generation ahead of me because we use technology primarily to give and to gain information. And so we give it out in the forms of email or text and we get it back when we Google information or from those forms of social media. But in the three generations younger than us, Increasingly so, the use of technology is not so much to gain or to send information as it is to engage in relationship and to create community. 
So it's confusing for me to see a group of uh, uh, students gather together to have some fun together and for the first seven minutes to be primarily engaged on their phones. For me, that looks disrespectful and distracted and unfocused. For them, they're simply recognizing with honor the larger social community that they're choosing to engage at this particular point in time as they move forward with those that happen to be physically proximate with them. We have a lot to learn in our conversation with one another. But I want you to know that in the face of what is uncertain and scary, that God's word has never changed. And God repeated this command to us 365 times in the Bible, do not be afraid. For lo, I am with you always and way to the ends of the world and human era. God is with you. Last week, uh, I violated one of David's good rules when uh, Jacob, the four-year-old, and Christina, the seven-year-old, were with us for a couple of nights. We tucked them in with uh, the Bible for Kids app. And what was fun was the next day, I saw Jacob playing on my iPad and out of the 55 apps that I've loaded on my devices for the grandkids, he was choosing to play with Bible app for kids. And I thought to myself, how in the world could I have ever incentivized a four-year-old to read the Bible during the day on his own? God says, do not be afraid. I am with you. God's word was true in Moses' desert with parents and extended families that had a very uncertain future. It was just as true 2,000 years ago in Jesus' Palestine, where people had a clash of politics and religion and culture and all kinds of uncertain and unsettled ways. It's equally true and relevant today in our times of transformation and uncertainty. He says this to us, do not be conformed, but be transformed in your minds. And I invite you to consider which one of these fresh commitments you might be drawn toward making this week. How will you love God in some fresh way? And how will you serve someone in a new way this week? And how will you work on developing some healthy habits, maybe with your use of technology and helping kids that are watching learn those as well? And how will you be a monitor for kids and a mentor, for older kids and a model for everyone. How will you teach us this week about how to love God and others better? Don't just be sloppily, easily conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And together we will experience God's will, which is always good and pleasing and perfect. Amen.